Hey there, welcome to Board Game Hot Takes, the podcast where we give our immediate reactions to the hottest board games just minutes after playing them. My name's Tim. This is Adam. And I'm Jen. And today we're going to give our hot take review on the game we just finished playing, Agricola. But before we do, I have some poll results, but I also have some interesting facts about tonight's recording. We've got a first time thing happening here, and that is that for the first time in the history of this podcast, we have two of us recording in the same room tonight. So (laughs) we'll see how this goes. Could be a mess, could be a disaster. It's like a train wreck. You want to watch it happen. Stick around. Let's see how it goes. Good luck, you guys. Are you guys sharing any equipment over there? We are. We're sharing We're sharing a mic and we're sharing one set of earbuds. Yeah. One of us has one side in yeah. each ear. There's never been a more adorable moment in this <laughs> podcast history. So, yeah. It's really cute, you guys. We need to take a picture of this and put it up on <laughs> Twitter because it is adorable. <laughs> Jen's getting out of this frame now. Before we jump into the conversation on Agricola, I actually have some poll results to talk about and a little bit of news. We got invited by Stonemeyer Games. Jamie Stegmeyer reached out to us and wanted us to be a part of his annual charity auction. And what Stonemeyer Games does every year is they invite 10, you know, media folks, board game media folks, content creators, reviewers, whatever you want to call us. They invite 10 of them to basically pick a charity and then they put up a whole bunch of Stonemeyer kind of exclusive stuff up for auction. And then when people you know, donate towards that auction, then they're going to get that exclusive stuff, but that money's going to go right to the charity. And so my game is matches up to a thousand dollars for each of the charities. And I've been watching this over the last few years. And so I was excited to be a part of it, but this was by far the, the most money they've ever raised. And so it was really cool. We chose the charity everytown.org, which is a anti-gun violence organization, nonprofit that um, supports education around gun violence and and um, understanding the causes of it and tries to you know mitigate some of that stuff. We chose that charity and we got the highest out of the 10 content creators, we got the highest total bid on our auction. So it was super exciting to be a part of this. Overall, $4,500 was donated to everytown.org because of our involvement in this auction and because of the person who donated the money and Stonemeyer Games matching that donation. So Wanted to just shout that out, say thanks to Stonemaier Games for including us in that. And uh, we, we love being a part of it. This was absolutely incredible. Thank you so much, Stonemaier Games. Tim finding a way to somehow make a charity auction into a competition. Even though we did get the highest, yes, the real winners are all the charities. They got all this money donated from mostly listeners and Board Game Geek users come on here and post how much they're willing to pay for a bunch of awesome stuff that Stonemaier Games donated in addition to, I think every one of the charities had over $1,000 donated to them. So pretty amazing job. Yeah. Very cool stuff going on by Jamie Stegmeyer using his uh, his position to help out a lot of people. Very grateful. Very cool. Thank you so much. Yeah. Right on. All right. So let's jump into the poll question that I asked. If we, so every week, if you're new to the show, every week I ask a question on Twitter We want people to contribute to this poll, and we're going to read the results. We're also going to read some of the responses and talk about how we feel about it. I asked the question on Twitter this week at BG underscore hot takes. I said, have you ever reacquired a board game that you previously sold or gave away? And here's how people responded. Yes, more than two was 13.9%. Yes, two or less was 22.4%. And no was 63.7%. And the reason I asked this question was because the game that we are going to discuss tonight, Agricola, is the first game that I ever sold in the past and then recently reacquired. And so that's why the the question came up. But it seems like there's a few other people that have also done the same thing. How did you guys answer this? So I answered this one, I think it was two or less was one of the categories. So the one that I did sell back in the day was The Expanse, the board game. And then I played this one online with some friends and I loved it. I never had a really chance to play it. I never thought I'd be able to get it to the table with four players. So I rebought The Expanse by WizKids Games. And Jeff Engelstein is the designer of this one. It's a great game. It's a card-driven board game. We had a lot of fun. We played it at Palm Springs. I think everybody enjoyed it there. I got the Doors and Corners expansion. I love the intellectual property. If you haven't seen it, there's nine books. And there's six seasons, I believe, on Amazon. It's a great show, great books. 
and the game is really fun too. Production's a little lackluster. You might have to add some little stuff to to bling it up if uh, if you're into production. So that's one of them. And I plan on picking up Soul Last Days of a Star again once it comes out. They're supposed to do a Kickstarter. This is Elephant Labs. They're doing a game called Organism as well. And as part of that Kickstarter or whatever crowdfunding site they're releasing on, Soul Last Days of a Star is going to be included as an add-on to that. So... I'll be a grand total of two. Interesting. I think I fall into, it looks like, um, the majority and that this has not happened to me before. But I guess if you really do, if we were really, you know, we go a little bit further outside the box, I did specifically go and buy like, it's the pop matic bubble game. Trouble. 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 I bought like specifically a version from like the <laughs> 70s. And so I had previously had that in my collection. Like we're talking big time strategy here. And then I also did the same thing with Hi-Ho, another classic, Hi-Ho Cherio. And so that one was also purchased from like the 1978 version to make sure that my children experienced the correct um, version of each one of those games. So if we were going to count those, which obviously we totally would not, I understand, um, <laughs> I would say, um, yeah, no, I fall into the majority on that one. Well, Jen, how many times have you bought a Castle of Burgundy? If we look at this in kind of a roundabout way, haven't you acquired different versions are you planning on keeping all of those versions are you going to sell any of those so maybe if we disrupt the timeline a little bit you will have acquired and sold some versions of castle of burgundy yeah we'll need to like break some planes and do some time travel and stuff like that but if we do i think that we can make the answer be castles of burgundy for this question adam you are correct all right One of the people that responded on the poll has something I'm going to mention here briefly that's pretty similar to that Castle of Burgundy situation. But I want to go back, Adam, to your um, the Expanse uh, board game repurchase that you're talking about. And I just wanted to mention, you were talking about like you need to upgrade some stuff on there. Someone actually gave me a really cool idea on Twitter, and I just wanted to call this out. It's unrelated to the Expanse, but it, but it reminded me of it. Because when we played Expanse, we used your ships from Eclipse to replace the stupid little cardboard shits in there. And I was complaining about how I didn't really like the Wind Gambit expansion for Scythe, which has those big airships in it. And somebody said you should use those. They're the right colors to replace the Dreadnoughts in Dune Imperium. So you can replace those little wooden ships with those big plastic airships. And I'm really tempted to do that now. So Very cool. Yeah, completely unrelated conversation. I think I still have that. Nobody wanted to buy that expansion off me. So I still have the Wind Gambit expansion sit in my garage. So I'm going to have to grab those. and Perfect throw them in something. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, you know, this is the first one that I ever reacquired was Agricola, which we'll, we'll talk about later tonight and why I reacquired it. But I also have a couple other games that I have gotten rid of. Now I call quickly. If it's a game that I feel like isn't going to get played, I just get rid of it. But sometimes I regret it and I'm okay with that. But there's a couple other games I'd like to pick up again at some point. I'd like to pick up Outlive, which I gave to Chris at some point. I, I love that game. So I want to get that again. And I might pick up like Imperial Settlers and uh, Hyperborea were the two other games that I I really liked. I ended up getting rid of them because I just didn't feel like they were getting played. But I think I'd like to add them back to my collection. So a couple for me. Here's what some other listeners said. Chris Prime and Scott P on Twitter both said pretty much the same thing. Chris said, I'd have to get rid of a game first for that to happen. <laughs> and Scott P said, still working up to actually getting rid of a game in the first place. So there's some people that have not gotten rid of any game, so they've never reacquired one. I think that's also our Chris's line of thinking too yeah. on this situation. Just, just acquire, acquire, acquire until he runs out of space or <laughs> until some kind of threshold is met. I think he's not getting rid of anything. That's right. That's right. Uh, Board Game Chatterbox said, I have called lots of games, maybe 30, but never reacquired one. If I ever miss something I've called, I'll just get it in a heartbeat and not worry. It's bound to happen at some point, but I don't want that fear to stop me coll- stop me from keeping my collection size in some sort of control. And that's exactly how I feel. I'm like, I'm more likely to just get rid of something. And then if I miss it later, that's cool. I'll just pick it up again. It's like, they, you know, the great thing about calling games right now is like you can pretty much sell them for 50 to 70 percent of what you paid for it and then you can probably pick it up used for the same price so it's basically like just trading at this point it's bartering i keep listening to the word coal and i'm like like i feel like we're in a little bit of the hunger games right now it's like a different (laughs) kind of game all together is going on when we're talking about getting rid of games our game yeah our games are volunteering for tribute (laughs) that's right Um, and then the, the last one I'll read. So Geekery from, this is at Geekery NZ. So I assume they're in New Zealand. They said, does it, does acquiring the Kickstarter version of games that you have the retail version for then selling the retail version count? If so, three, Hellboy, Rising Sun, and Ike. And I said, no, you're good. That's just upgrading games you know you love. And then he responded, haha, 
only played one of them so far. So this is somebody that literally like <laughs> bought a game, never played it, and then actually bought an upgraded version of it and sold the other one. So yeah, you get called out for that one. All right, well, let's jump into a description of Agricola. In Agricola, players take the role of a farmer and spouse in pre-industrial Europe. You and your spouse accomplish various tasks via worker placement spots to upgrade your three x five plot of land. Some of these spots include actions as simple as acquiring grain, plowing a field, digging up clay, and chopping wood. But actions grow in complexity and cost as the game progresses. New actions emerge such as upgrading your abode, adding rooms to your farm, acquiring animals, a kitchen, making babies, and building fences. A card draft at the beginning of the game may guide your strategy to most efficiently build your farm and feed your family. In this version of the game, we use a deck of occupation cards and a deck of minor improvement cards in a pick and pass phase before developing our farms. These cards typically enhance available action spots. In-game scoring is a bit complex, but typically points are earned for the most developed farm and most prized animals. And points are lost for failing to feed your family effectively. Agricola was designed by Yui Rosenberg in 2007 with art by Clemens Franz and has had numerous publishers over the years. All right, welcome back. So we're going to talk about the gameplay and mechanisms of Agricola. Uh, just a little bit of history, a little background here. So I've played this game about 10 times. Um, Agricola was one of the first hobby games I got introduced to about five years ago, played it a few times way back in the day. And then I, I bought the game, I owned it, and I just it was like, my friends aren't going to want to play a farming game, so I sold it off. And then I started playing it on Board Game Arena recently and was reminded how much I loved it. So I picked it up again, played it like four or five times this last week, and prepped for this, for this review. So that's my experience with it. Adam, this was your second play of it, right? You played once before on Board Game Arena. I just had the uh, click through with you, just kind of getting familiar with the layout and the cards, and the very, very, very basics of the game. So this is like first and a half play, I'd say. Yeah, and, and Jen had played, I, I taught it to her earlier this week, we played it three other times in person, I think, before this first play on Board Game Arena. So. Yeah, this was a this was a birthday request from Tim. And as we know, we've heard before, like Tim chooses and then you just, that's what's going to happen. This is the birthday game is going to happen, whatever it is. And so this year it was Agricola a lot for some reason and i don't know i thought that you'd get like you'd want more than like one like two or three but it just was like agricola agricola like we i felt like we were prepping for this like you had to win tonight no. for some reason you just weren't telling me about no that. i was prepping so that you could actually talk about the game intelligently <laughs> tonight so i was i was doing it for the show everybody i gave up my my secondary birthday game for a better review of agricola on the show tonight so anyway jen and i have a little bit of so noble of you tim to make such sacrifice <laughs> So Jen and I have a little experience is a little bit new for Adam. So let's jump into our, our you know, the most interesting mechanisms that we have to talk about here. It's worker placement, right? And that's, that's the same old thing. But new worker placement spots come out every round. I think that's cool. So there's an evolving state. You kind of know which ones are going to come out in round one, which we, but you don't know the order that these spots are going to come out in. So you can kind of plan if you're familiar with the game, but not really. You can, you can semi-plan. Uh, and look ahead and know what you want to do and develop a strategy. And you know you're going to be able to get there eventually, just not know exactly when you're going to be able to get there. So I like that these these spots come out and the game evolves and there's some emerging gameplay as the game goes on. A lot of work replacement games don't have it as well as this one does it. What I liked about this one with the worker placement that it, it sometimes in worker placement games, and I'm thinking like um, viticulture, I feel like there's so much scarcity that I'm always behind and I almost always cannot achieve almost anything that I'm looking to achieve in a game like that. And in this one, it felt like that nice balance of I had enough grasp of it, even from game one, I didn't feel like, oh my gosh, I just need to use this next six rounds in order to accumulate resources to do anything. I felt like it was a nice balance of accumulating those resources and accomplishing something as it went along. Now, I, I think it's worth mentioning that we have to call out that this was one of the first modern worker, one of the first worker placement games ever. I don't think it was the first, but uh, Bus might, might claim that. I heard Bus and Kalis always get tossed around. I haven't done Kalis, that homework, homework yeah. Counter, yeah. But but this was a very early one, and I'm still shocked coming back to it after playing dozens of worker placement games, dozens of modern Euros, modern strategy games, how well this holds up for me. I think that it still does some things really well that even U Uwe Rosenberg has not reproduced, even though he's tried. He's, he's done many, many other worker placement games 
with similar themes and some similar mechanisms. And I still think that for me, Agricola still does it the best. There's two things that I think are worth talking about. So the first one I want to mention is these accumulation spaces on the board. The game has some tight choices. You know, the earlier on, of course, there's less spaces to take, but there's always things that are more valuable. And one of the things that pushes that every time, even if you think you've got a strategy you want to go to, once the round resets and you accumulate the goods there, all of a sudden, hey, there's nine wood on that space. Now, I really wanted to go do a harvest or I really wanted to go pick up sheep, but I can't pass up nine wood. So I got to change that, you know, change my strategy. And I think that's really fascinating. I haven't seen that used a whole lot recently, but like Dune Imperium even did it with the spice in that game. But I think that Agricola is a little bit more interesting from that perspective because there's a whole bunch of spaces that do it. And so there's always a push and pull. Hey, I didn't care about clay this turn. I wasn't planning to go, go that way, but there's six clay sitting there. I better go take that. So I think it really drives some interesting choices and, and decisions and tough decisions about when is the right time to take it. Not just, are you going to block me this round, but are you going to pick up all that stuff in next round? It's going to be worth almost nothing to me. Yeah, the uh, you mentioned Dude Imperium. I love how it does that there with a the spice. And that was a nice juicy tidbit in this game you see those resources gathering up oh i want to go take nine clay for no reason other than just to have nine clay because that's awesome that's really great maybe you're going to mention this as your second thing tim but the the giraffe i understand there's a lot of different versions and different ways to play this game i like the draft up front i think there's i don't know if it was 10 card 14 cards something like that and you're drafting a, a handful a slew of these little minor improvements and then after that, a bunch of these occupation cards. Yeah. So right there, you can start sort of strategizing and seeing what combos are going to work well together and develop a little strategy right off the bat, which is pretty fun. I enjoy that draft a lot. What I thought was neat was that there's a significant power, obviously, in this game for being first player. And the rotation of that, the placement where you put your worker for that, it's not just you get first player next time. It also has its meeting place. You get a minor improvement with it as well, and that has a lot of power as you you know build your deck or build your your engine to figure out where you're going, just kind of to figure out what your strategy is going to be for that game. And so the fact that you get to place your worker there, get the first player for the next round, and also get to play a card feels like it's a powerful move, but it's also something that I feel like has a lot more power in the first couple rounds. And so we're playing those first couple rounds, and everyone's kind of fighting for it. And then it just became less of a power struggle as the game goes on. And I've seen that almost every single time that first player is like so significant and we're killing each other for it. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, who, who got first player? I don't even remember what happened towards the end of the game. Yeah, that's a great point because there's so many more spaces that open up there that the first player isn't as important. Going back to what you said about the draft, Adam, this is the second thing I want to talk about. And it's not just about there's a draft, but it's that there's this huge variety of cards that come up, right? Everybody starts with 14, seven of each type you can pick from. You can draft them. You can randomly deal them out. There's a whole bunch of different recommended ways to do this in the rule book in order to distribute these cards. But the point is that this is where the variety comes in the game. Like there were still on my 10th play, there were some cards that came up tonight that I'd never seen before. And even if I've seen a lot of them, I see them in different orders. And that is what is really fun about this game. And I think what raises this above Caverna for me and raises it above A Feast for Odin, which are two similar Uwe Rosenberg games that, that you know, even A Feast for Odin has some of these cards, but they're, they're not as impactful. They're not as easy to get out. And like by the end of this game, I think, you know, I had like 10 cards out on the table. Adam had a few because it was only his second game, but Jen and Steve both had like six or seven. And so there's, there's this pretty interesting engine building. You can get some combos going where if you can get a couple of cards out that all trigger off one action they really benefit you in some unique ways and i to be honest like this was a really fun game for me because i was doing terribly it seemed like every time i was going to do something somebody else took the space that i wanted to take this game right so like by the you know third to last round i had almost nothing in my farm i had no fences i had no no pastures i had almost no fields but i had built up this really big card engine so that i was kind of able to set myself up in the last few rounds to take advantage of. And I ended up winning pr with, with a pretty significant amount. I'm not, not bragging about that. Just mentioning that there's, there's a different arc, you know, this game can go in different ways and those cards can have a big impact. And I love that. I think that's, what's going to make this game fun to come back to repeatedly, because it's a little bit about that setting yourself at the beginning to see what the potential engine is. And then when's the right time to take an action to play one of those cards versus taking one of the accumulation spaces. Like there's, there's so many cool choices that come out of that. My favorite part about what you just said is that, um, 
you know, you were really frustrated at the beginning and I know that I'm doing well or I'm making the right choice for that round when Tim swears at me. So like everybody can identify like, oh, that was a really good, that was a strategic move. That's going to kill it. That's going to push you forward because Tim's like, oh, no, no, right. <laughs> Just happens, right? Yeah. That's a nice subtle backdoor brag about how much you won the game by Tim. It wasn't, it wasn't really even close. There was a, maybe a battle for second, third place. But what is front and center and banging on the front door in this game is that you have to feed your people. It's a Rosenberg hallmark, whether it's feeding Vikings or whether it's feeding your cave trolls, whatever it is, you have to feed your people if you're if you're playing a UE Rosenberg game. And animals are going to breed, right? Or plants are going to grow, whatever. He likes to do this farming, this whole agricultural bit he wants to put in there. So those are two staples of UE Rosenberg games that I am kind of mediocre on. Those cards you talked about, Tim, there's ways to mitigate, there are ways to help you out so you can kind of get past that. But that's always like a hurdle that you're going to have to jump over when you're playing Rosenberg games and is front and center here in Agricola. Well, I, I think this is a great time to jump over to the theme and production because one of the cool things and, and the, you know, what you're complaining about, Adam, is feeding your people, right? But I don't think there's been a more thematic Euro that's ever been made. Adam's giving me some weird looks here, but let me explain. Everything you're doing here is in service of the theme of you're this tiny little homestead, medieval times, there's no resources, you're just trying to survive. All you're trying to do is maybe you'll do a little day job and go pick up some food. But what you really want to be doing is starting to build up your farm so that you can kind of sustain yourself. And everything about this is in service of the theme. The feeding is there to say, hey, at some point you want to get your farm running well enough where feeding is kind of an afterthought. And then you can focus on the other things that are going on and not just to focus. And that's one of the interesting things about the arc of this game, and it feeds into that theme, is that at the start, it's so hard. You just have to spend actions to go get food. It's it's a weight. Like, you don't want to be doing that. You want to be making your farm better. But towards the end, you can start just like, hey, I got so many pigs here. I don't even care about them. Let's turn a couple into bacon, and we're all set. But everything about this, I mean, from the sowing and planting crops in order to generate more you know, vegetables and grains to grow in a future season, raising animals and where they can go. Like, hey, one can stay in your house with you, but you can't put too many there. So you better build some pens Super and uh, stables <laughs> to keep them out in your field. <laughs> Everything about the game is the it is all about the theme of making a farm operate. And I think, again, one of the areas where Agricola kind of beats, I mean, cave farmers, you know, Caverna does that to some extent as well. But you get to an, into a Feast for Odin and all of a sudden you're just like, what, I'm throwing these tiles out into this big pit? Like, that's what I'm doing, right? It's more about the mechanisms. In Agricola, the mechanisms really do drive and it makes you feel like, hey, I am building a farm. I've got these two people, this couple. But if I work really hard and I build another room up, maybe I, maybe we'll have a baby and then we'll have a third worker. But you don't get it till the next season because they got to grow up and get old enough. But then you've got that third person that that's working and helping you. But now you got another mouth to feed. So that's tough. You got more, you know, it's it's all so thematic. And I love I love how well it comes together here, even if farming is not super exciting. Oh, you nailed it, Tim. Farming is not so exciting. That's <laughs> this is like a farm simulator. This is what you're doing. It's like a life simulator in 1600s agritarian more Europe or whatever. So, yeah, it's super thematic and yeah you're farming you're growing stuff and stuff pumpkins grow and some grains and then you can buy a fireplace and you can turn sheep into mutton so if that's your thing if you think farming is exciting and you want to live that life and see what it's like to go through the struggles and the perils but for me i, I don't know look at anachrony you even have to feed your people there you have to feed them you know water and i think that's way more exciting and albeit science fiction-y thematic but for me, that is another thematic Euro. A barrage is very thematic. As far as replicating what you're actually trying to do, yes, Tim, I think Agricola does a very nice job of farm simulation. So I can't argue that. But the last thing you said was farming might be one of the most boring themes that's out there. What did it say above your um, your player board, Adam? That's right. I kept scrolling down and it's Borgia uh, Marina just knows me. So right there on my player board, it said, you're bored. That's exactly <laughs> right. I was so, so bored trying to gather some clay or gather some stone or, I don't know, grow some pumpkins. Ugh. So Board Game Arena's uh, grammar is craptastic. So it was spelled Y-O-U-R. 
B-O-A-R-D, but we all know that it was just speaking to Adam and having a bad day when it came to the dictionary. Well, Jen, what what do you think about the theme and the production here? Like, is is there anything about it that instead that you like? Is there anything that you really dislike? Like, how do you feel about the theme and production of this game? So this theme and production are really familiar because this is the kind of game that I really do enjoy. This one, um, I think it probably took until this game for me to enjoy it because it felt like it was it was flowing and I understood it. Um, I would say that uh, a little bit of the clumsiness was taken away when we started playing it on Board Game Arena and it was kind of neat to have the board light up and tell me where I could go and couldn't go. Um, as much as I didn't like what the board was actually telling me. Um, but I mean, I like the little things like on the like urgent need for children versus the like you can get a children with a room. I don't know what that other one was called. It's like wish for child and then yeah. urgent wish for children. Or yeah. Something like that. And then like the thematic because there's like little hearts coming out of a room, right? If it was like wish for children and then there's like little hearts coming out of the the forest when it was the. I don't know, whatever, whatever one it was, but I was like, oh, that little detail was, was kind of neat. And so I I don't know. I liked it again. It felt familiar. It felt homey. It felt like I can handle this. So, and as we all know at this point, like anytime I see a cow or a sheep or a bull or whatever it is in the wild on emojis in, you know, on TV at this point, I'm just thinking what dry Euro are we talking about at this point? So, Jen, what is it about these agritarian Euro games that do it for you? I brought this up during the course of the game. There's Carpe Diem, Castles of Burgundy. I don't know what, I, how do you enjoy this theme? I don't get it. Explain it to me. I, my gosh, I don't even have a good answer for you. I'm not prepped for this one in any way. I just, I guess it's the, you know, the feeling of on those familiarity, being that Castles of Burgundy was the gateway drug into all this. I think that, you know, that's, I enjoy it so much like Notre Dame and we put on the table recently Carpe Diem. I think Tim tried to cull it Hunger Games style. And I was like, no, so that didn't end up going anywhere. <laughs> and I don't know, because when I'm looking at that huge pile of games, I think that that's, that's what I want to wrap my head around at that point in time. I'll have to get back to you on the whys, but I know that it makes my brain feel good. Therefore I participate. Okay. Yeah. I think Adam, what, the reality is, is that it's not about the theme. It's about the mechanisms. And these mm-hmm. games, these Euros, these classic Euros have amazing mechanisms. They're fantastic. House of Burgundy, Agricola. These are games that have withstood the test of time. These are still in the top 30 games of all time on Board Game Geek for a good reason. It's because they're freaking great games. And I think Jen just feels it, right? And I don't even know. Like, I'm not going to speak to her final thoughts on Agricola specifically. You're saying, why are you drawn to the theme? I don't think she's drawn to the theme at all. Maybe Jen could disagree with me. I think she's just, I've introduced her to some games that are fantastic. And she's willing to look past the theme because the mechanisms are are amazing. And that's why I do too, right? Like, I don't really want to play a game about farming. It doesn't get me excited. But I love that the farming theme comes through here. If I'm going to be playing this mechanical game. I love that I can feel the theme in it. And I love that it, it has all these hints. What would it be like if you were trying to raise this farm up? So I like that. And so I think that if we went back for a second, maybe if all the uh, listeners want to go back a couple minutes and listen to Tim's passionate description of farming, they might disagree with what you said, especially considering like that a vegetarian just like wax poetic about throwing a pig into the fire and creating bacon. So I don't know. I don't know if I 100% agree that you're not feeling this theme in some way. <laughs> Yeah, well, I can also wax poetic about uh, time traveling and stealing water so somebody else starves in anachrony, but it's not that I actually want to starve somebody from water. It's like, <laughs> it's that the theme carries through, and I think it tells a story, and I think that's it's interesting. Okay, I am being a little unfair here. I, I do have my raised planter beds in back. I'm growing tomatoes. I'm growing little sweet peas. Made some tomato soup with some like peppers and all this stuff that I grew from my back, and it was amazing. So that is pretty freaking cool. Actually, but you know what? There's like a thousand games about farming in Europe. So I, I don't know. And there's just as many games with great mechanisms. I feel like you're hiding all these beautiful production games with fun mechanisms from you're just keeping her in the dark about these other great games, Tim. What's the deal, man? Show her some <laughs> smartphone ink. I guess people could say that theme is just as horrible as anything. <laughs> that's else. Adam's default. It's always smartphone ink. Yeah, that's the 
I think it's the third time tonight that he said like smartphone ink. Like we talked about one that I learned last week and one that I was playing and he's like, oh yeah, you just need to learn smartphone ink. It'll only take a second. Just go ahead. Smart. And the last time, like whenever it was two months ago, smartphone ink. No, listen, I mean, I get it, right? But there is something to be said. There's a reason why I came back to this game. And there's a reason why this is the first time the game was re-added to my collection after I called it. I called it because I was like, no one wants to play this stupid farming game. And I'm probably right. There's a lot of people that don't want to play this stupid farming game. But this game is so tight. It's so interesting. I love the choices in it. This kind of goes back to our Lorenzo discussion from last week, where the worker placement is the type of interaction I want. And Agricola just escalates that. It's It, it was before Lorenzo. And they do them in different ways. And I think they're both great. But it's still fantastic. And I think I think it beats most modern worker placement games. I think A Feast for Odin, which is just this huge sandbox game where you can do something no matter what. Nobody's going to get in your way. I like when somebody can get in your way. I think there's the right kind of interaction here for me. So I really like what Agricola does. But going back to the theme and production one last time, I just want to mention, we've talked last week about Clemens Franz artwork. We talked about four weeks ago when we talked about Clans of Caledonia with Clemens Franz artwork. I don't know how many games we've we've covered on this show that had Clemens Franz artwork on it, but somehow it works for me in this game. Like I like the production here. I am tired of seeing the same artwork over and over again. This was one of his earlier Euro games, as far as I know, that highlighted Clemens Franz style. I think it really works here. I'm happy with the production. I think this is a beautiful game. We played the revised edition um, in person. That's what I have, as well as I think what we were playing online. The original version of this game, the workers were little discs. They were little wooden discs. And all of the resources and animals, I think, were little cubes of different colors. But this one, no, they're little Anna meeples. There's like little sheep meeples and cow meeples and and uh, pig meeples. And there's little people. And, you know, all the, all the things represent. I like the production of this game. I think for what it is, for the classic style of it is, I think this is top notch. I love to have it on the table. I think it's beautiful. I just love it. Yeah, if you're going for that classic feel, I think you're right, Tim. This is like the quintessential early resource management game, and it has that feel with it for sure. You can't argue with that. And I just looked up Clemens Franz because I was curious what other artworks we had talked about a couple that we thought might be. There was some that Tim was confident in and some we weren't sure about. And or- Orleans came up Orleans, on there. Yeah, yeah. Or- Orleans, a Clemens yeah. Franz game. Yep, exactly. He's done a ton, and I don't even get to the full list. Like, that's notable game list that you're looking at right yeah. there. But, I mean, he's done a hundred, probably, Euro-style games, many that you'll you'll recognize if we, if we pulled up a full list of them. All right, well, let's jump into what the most important question, and that is, would you request to play Agricola again? I, I don't think I would. I don't, I don't think I can. There's so many other great games out there with different themes that I am more drawn to the mechanisms here are solid, Tim. I did not not enjoy my play tonight. I had a good time playing this game tonight. There was a lot going on here. I think there's tons and tons to explore. What, there's over a thousand cards that you can add, you can mix in and out of this game and a few different versions of it. So there is tons here. But am I going to go back to it when there's stuff like smartphone ink out there <laughs> and barrage out there? And I know you guys are laughing, man. Eclipse out there, Age of Galaxy. There's so many other tight resource management games with themes that I just prefer. And I think that's super, you know, maybe it's superficial, but that's one of the main things that's keeping me away from games like Agricola and Caverna and Lorenzo. There are solid games with artwork and themes that I prefer. I like the immersion. I like getting in, pretending I'm out in space floating around. I don't want to be toiling after the Black Plague, trying to keep my family alive, being forced to feed them corn or meat, get a kitchen, get a wood oven. And no, I am not going to request to play this one again. Begrudgingly, I might play it again. If you send me an invite on Board Game Arena, yeah, I'm going to click yes. Of course, I'm not going to say no, and I'll play this one again. But uh, that's where I sit right now with Agricola. Before Jen jumps in with her answer, because I'm really interested in hers as well, because she's my one of my local game groups, so it may dictate how much I get the game played. But before she jumps in, Adam, I want to ask you, because when we talked about the games that we were least interested in playing on board game on the Board Game Geek Top 100 this year, you 
you kind of double ranked this with Caverna and said, I have no interest in playing either of these games. So now you've had a chance to play it. You know, how did it hit your expectations at least? Like, did you feel like you, you're, you, you were right? You should have never tried it? Or are you glad that you at least tried it? I'm glad I at least tried it. I've heard so much about it. And I was curious about what's going on in the game. And it's it's a Mui Rosenberg. It's one of his best games. It always gets mentioned as one of the top games. And people, it's still in people's top 10, top 5 lists all the time you hear about it so i'm happy to try it and see it i think it's a foundational game and a lot of games took some of the mechanisms here and and went in different directions with them or built on them improvements in quotes were made on this game and i think it's an early game for a lot of designers i think a lot of people took inspiration from this game and took it their own way for me i could not have a more neutral answer to answer the question directly, would I request to play this game? No. But would I say yes if given three games and the other ones were like Stall Realms of the Galaxy Extra Death Rage or, you know, something else of equal <laughs> wizard fight <laughs> or lesser interest yeah. to me? That's what I think. So I think the answer is sure. If someone else wanted to play it and they felt really strongly about it, I'd be more than willing to participate in the process. But I think like you all identified for me, it's about the mechanisms in this one. And there's plenty of other games for me um, that might even have as dry or boring themes over those mechanisms. But this one didn't like float my boat enough to, 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 to request it personally. Yeah. And I'm actually surprised by this, Jen. And completely understand it. I could feel it, you know, but usually what happens is I'll teach you a game and the first time you just seem like you hate it. And so I always try, I'm always like, okay, we got to try. If I can get this in front of her one more time, I think this is going to stick. I think she'll like it. And so we played it a second time and you're like, eh, you know, still not that excited. And then a third time and a fourth time, and you never seemed to enjoy it. What is it about the mechanisms that you think were less interesting than something like Orleone, which you kind of fell in love with that on your second play or like Castle of Burgundy, which you fell in love with on your second play. Like what, what do you think it is here? I can tell you what I think it is, but I'm just curious. Do you, do you have a, can you recognize what the difference is for you? No, I have to, I mean, we're just going to fast forward. Skip, tell me, I got to hear this answer. But, well, <laughs> to me, I, I feel like it's that most of the other games that you enjoy playing are a little bit more streamlined as far as like, you know, here's a few, here's six actions you can take and you're going to do those actions. <laughs> what are you doing? I don't know what he's doing. <laughs> he's saying smartphone ink oh, while holding his phone up. <laughs> I don't know what you guys are talking about. Why would you bring that streamlined? Amazing? Tactile? Okay, I got it. But with Agricola, I think that there's a lot of choice. There's a lot of cards you got to evaluate. You know, 14 cards in your hand at the beginning of the game. There's a lot of different actions to take. There's a lot of different, like, the, the things have more complexity on top of each other, even though your basic actions are similar. Do you think that that is what may be driving you away from it? Or am I completely off base here? I think that if I had to identify one thing, it's the card drafting component of it. It does not float my boat in any way. Like a game I really do like is Isle of Cats. But honestly, I just want someone to hand me the cards on that one. Um, and then I want to actually play the game. Like tell me which cards to take. Don't make me think through this process. Because there's lots of thinking processes that make my brain feel awesome and I'm having a great time. Card drafting does not seem to be one of them. And I can obviously be proven wrong. Like, oh, Jen, remember when you played blah, 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 the game three years ago and you loved it and it had card drafting. Oh, I'm so wrong. But <laughs> just have a little combo with myself there. Um, so, yeah, for me, this one, especially and there's two, two sets of card drafting. So we have to draft the um, professions or whatever they're called. And then we have to draft the minor improvements. And so we're 14. We're passing 14 cards before you've even started the game. And so for me, that takes a little wind out of my sails and um, the excitement. We like there's so much prep. It's like game setup, right? Like there are certain games that I really like to play that take a really long time, like Orleans. But if you told me I had to set that sucker up, we would play it like negative four and a half times. <laughs> Wait, what if what? So the other night we played it without drafting. We just handed out the seven, the, you know, the 14 cards. Did, did that help? Yeah, for me, it did. I think I had a decent experience with it. Did I have like the greatest I had to figure out a strategy? Yeah. Um, based on the cards that you were drafted, which is much different from kind of thinking it out as you go. But again, that's what makes that setup time so long. 14 cards we had to go through. Oh, so fun. All right. Well, so for me, obviously, I just mentioned that I reacquired the game because I get to play it on Board Game Arena again. And I really had 
I thought like, I was like, oh, this is kind of a mediocre, I don't need to come back to this game. And I got to play it on board game arena and I took the first few turns and I was like, oh, I remember why I didn't like this. And then by like the sixth round, I was like, oh crap, I love this game already. So I, I fell back in love with it. I love the game. I think it's great. Theme aside, I could care less, but I think the mechanisms fit with the theme perfectly. I love it. My wife seems to love it. She was hitting me up on board game. She's like, hey, Tim, let's play a game of Agricola on board game arena today. I was like, that's amazing. So I'm excited. Jen may not be playing it much with us, but I think this is going to be a hit for for me and my wife regularly. I love this game, and I think it's going to be maybe a top 20 game for me next year. We'll see. I don't know. But, uh, but really, really, really enjoy this game. So I will be asking to play it as much as I can. Jen may not be involved kick her out of the group and find somebody else to come play it with me but um, <laughs> I, I like it a lot and uh was surprised by that i think it holds up really well and i've unfortunately been very surprised by some older games because i made an argument on a podcast about six months ago saying like no newer games are better than older games i'm starting to reevaluate after playing agricola and lorenzo like these games are so good they're so tight they're so they're so well made that um yeah i don't know i'm i'm, I'm starting to question my own complete and life choices founding just to elaborate on that i think there are so many new games that it's hard to pick the quality games out there's a lot more choice there's a lot more games that are out there and to find some of those newer ones that that do have that streamlined feel that aren't over bloated i think you've talked about this tim too that a lot of the newer resource management ones just have this module and this module and you got to trade in this thing to do this thing this other thing like just get to the game, get to the fun, thinky part, and don't make me add this sideboard and this other sideboard and this other sideboard so I can get to the fun yeah. parts of the game. All right. Well, I think that'll wrap up our conversation on Agricola. Let's jump into a few games that are have that have been on our table, as well as some future takes right after this. All right, welcome back. The game that uh, we've been playing, Tim, that I want to talk about, that Chris Prime, I don't even know his real name, but Chris Prime, one of our listeners and one of our friends that plays games with us and has introduced us to a bunch of games, including this one, Gang of Dice. This is by designer Rainer Knizia, so Chris is already not going to like it. Um, the artist is Odang. Publisher is Mando Games. This is strictly a dice game, and I heard that uh, Rainer Knizia was a math guy, and this shows that off hardcore. What are you doing here? There's different cards that have different objectives. So these cards might have three dice on them, and it'll say two dice can't be equal to each other. One of the incredible things about this game is you pick how many dice you want to use to try to avoid that objective and get the highest roll. And one of the faces on the dice is a mustache guy. So instead of a six, there's this little mustache guy. I don't know what that's all about. Probably something in a theme here in the rule book, but whatever. The numbers are one through five. Traditional dice, except for the six, is a mustache. So you're rolling them. Again, we'll go back to the example where two dice can't be equal. Well, first choice, how many dice do you want to pick? Uh, well, if I pick one dice, I know that two dice can't be equal. So boom. Maybe I'll just do one dice and I'll roll that and I'll get a, a three. I get two chances to re-roll Yahtzee style. How many times I want to keep rolling or I just want to stop right here. It's a little bit of pressure to luck too. So that's boring. Now let's say I want to try two dice instead of one. You can't do this in the game, but let's say for this example, I started with two dice. Oh, I got a four and a five. That's pretty good. That's nine. The highest possible score in this scenario is in fact a nine because a five and a five, that's two dice equal to each other. Well, no, that's not the highest. What if you had three dice? You could get, I don't know. Three, four, five. A four, yeah, a five, a four, and a three. So there you go. Do you want to keep pressing your luck? So the first choice is how many dice do you want to choose? I think that's freaking amazing. A lot of these cards are fun. So one of them is you can't have a one, a three, and a five by the end of your three rolls. So some of them are instant, instant boom, and you're out, you bust. But some of them are you get to roll all three times, up to three times, and see if you can avoid that condition. So I just think it's great. So I don't know. There's a series of how many cards, Tim? I don't know how many cards. 20? I think it's like 13 cards or something that you play through. So there's all these bunch of cards. I think they're in a random order. You're trying to get the highest value out of all your opponents. 
And if you do, you get to collect, you win the dice from all your opponents. It goes into your stash. And at the end of the game, whoever has the most dice is the winner. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's what's cool about it, right? So like it, when you win a round, if you're the, first of all, if you hit one of these conditions and you fail, you just, you're out, you're out of the round. But whoever ends up having the, the highest pips, right, wins, but they get all of the dice that everyone bid that round. So if, if you bid two dice and you managed to win, you're the only one that didn't bust, but three other people bid five dice each, you just walked away that round with 17 dice to add to your original, I don't know, 25 or 30 or whatever you start with. And so the, the game is going to be played, and every time that you lose dice, you're down further. If you run out of dice completely, you're just out of the game. But at the end of the game, whoever has the most dice is the winner. So it's like super simple components. It's just big handfuls of dice that you've got available to you. If you win, you get more dice. If you lose, you lose some dice, and you just want more dice. It doesn't feel like a Reiner Knizia game at all. It's just this fun little light push-your-luck dice game, and it's such a blast. It's so much fun. See, I think he... I think it does feel like a Reiner Casey. He does a lot of these games that are based on fun, probability, fun choices, simple choices, but really involve a deep understanding of probability and statistics, right? So you got High Society, same way. It just goes around around the table with these little... Anyway, take a look at High Society. I get a similar feel from that. It's just a quick 20-minute game. Here he does it with dice. I think this game is absolutely amazing. It's a gang of dice. Thank you, Chris Prime for introducing this one to the group, having tons of fun playing it. Adam, have you ever played Can't Stop, the um, the Sid Saxon classic from like 1980? No, I've heard great things though. Okay, so this is a game that I grew up with and it reminds me so much of it. It's a, it's a little bit different game, but it's a push your luck dice game. And uh, it's also available on Board Game Arena. So I'm going to hit you up with a game tomorrow and we'll play it. I think you'll like it. But give me the same feel. This is a little bit quicker, a little bit lighter. Um, I really like Gang of Dice. Here's an interesting fact about this. I don't even think this game's published yet. So it's up on Board Game Arena right now, but there's only 27 ratings on Board Game Geek for it. It doesn't even have like a full number rating at this point. It's not, a, not enough people have rated it. I think it might be coming out later this year, in at least in North America. Um, so keep an eye on this game. If you want a light little fun party, push your like dice game, this game is great. Super fun. I'm, I'm probably going to pick this up as soon as I see it in a store and it's available. Absolutely. On the table this last week, uh, I learned Fantastic Factories over really spicy Thai food. That was a lot of fun. I liked it. I thought it was just pretty in general. And it reminded me the dice like as worker placement. That really reminded me of, oh gosh, that game I liked from a couple years, Artemis Project. I think you got rid of that one. But I really liked the dice. I liked the feeling of putting those dice in those little square areas where that is. I, I got a kick out of that. I mean, it was a very tactile experience. Um, I think, I mean, there is an, like an aspect of card drafting, but it's not the same concept of having to look through all those cards at once. And so, I don't know. I really liked it. I don't know what you guys have, I know you both have played that one before, but I'm glad that it came to my table. Yeah. We, we talked about this last week on the show and Jen, the one thing that I didn't mention last week, which I just discovered this week, which I, I want to call out since you, you brought it up is that the designer is Joseph Z Chen and he's got a co-designer listed of Justin Faulkner, but the artist is also Joseph Z Chen. And I think it's fascinating because the art here is really cute. This kind of quirky, very brightly colored artwork, but it, it feels like it's a style, but it, it feels like professional. Like it doesn't feel like an amateur artist did this. And it's very cool to me. I don't know. I wonder if Joseph, you know, came up with this artwork and was like, hey, can I put a game around this? Or if he came up with the game and is like, hey, I might as well illustrate and put it out in front of the publisher. And they kept it. There's not too many designers that do their own artwork. Ryan Lockett's the other, only other person that comes to mind for me. So I'm really impressed with this game. I'm glad you liked it, John. We still have to get in front of Danielle, play together and see how it goes. I think she's going to like it. I predict that. And so that's exciting to, to think about the fact that we have a could have a winner for all three of us. Right on. All right. So cool. Um, the one game that I want to talk about this week, which I haven't talked about on our show, but if you don't follow them, I do weekly do a really quick segment on the Cardboard Conjecture podcast, where every Wednesday they release a show that is a whole bunch of content creators and, and board game media folks that, that release this What You've Been Playing Wednesday episode. And it's just a five to seven minute segment where you talk about the games that you've been playing. So I have talked about this game on that show. Um, so if you if you want to listen to more games I'm talking about, you can listen to it there. But I wanted to give my final thoughts on our show. I was kind of holding it 
until I had a chance to play it a few times. And this is a game called Batoku. Batoku was designed by German Milan and published by Devere Games. Batoku was released in 2021, so it's about a year old at this point, and uh, is one of the most beautiful looking games I've ever seen. The board game art is this beautiful, like, Japanese landscape with this fantastical dragon creature flying through the background. And that's what the game's all about. I mean, in a lot of ways, it reminds you of like a Miyazaki film with, you know, these these weird spirit creatures in and out of the game. So that's kind of the theme. You've got this beautiful, colorful artwork with these Japanese spirits. The whole point of the game is that you're trying to become the best spirit so that you can be the spirit, the great spirit of the forest. I'm not going to go into the rules because it's too complex. It's going to take too much time. It is a, a little bit of a dice worker placement game, a little bit of a deck building game involved here. I'll just say that it took me many, many hours to learn this game. It's very language independent and tons and tons of iconography. The rule book is okay, probably could have been done a little bit more streamlined. And it took me a lot of time to understand how the game played. But overall, the game is not that complicated. I think I could teach it a little bit quicker. The problem is that the game has just tons of iconography, tons of decisions to make, and none of them are that interesting. Um, essentially on your turn, you're going to play one of the cards out of your hand, or you're going to take one of the dice that was next to the card you just played and place it on the board, or you're going to take one of the dice that you previously played on the board and move it to another region of the board. There's a little bit of a race to try to do that first, but I mentioned it's a deck builder. Here's my first problem with it. You can get other cards during the course of the game, but your starting deck has like eight unique actions in it, and that's it. So if you add another card to your deck, it just does one of those same actions with an extra little bonus on it. There's no fun, interesting, different decisions that happen there. So deck building is not that fun. Um, the worker placement is okay. Uh, a little bit of a like the stronger dice pips that you put out on the board, the better benefits you're going to get from them. But I just didn't find it that interesting to, to go through that process. And when you're setting up the board, again, one of the most beautiful pr presentations I've ever seen, you have these different resources or these little wooden resources. One of the resources is a screen printed sake bottle for crying out loud. It's so cute. Like there's so many cool little components, beautiful artwork, but you set up the board and there's like maybe eight different regions of the board where you have to like set them up with tiles. Maybe it's like five tiles randomly chosen. And so if you buy one, there's a little market on all of these different regions of the board. And it's just like all of these, all of this stuff to make decisions that aren't that fun. Okay, I could pay one more resource to get one more component that's one space over from the one on the far left, but it doesn't do that much different. And there's a little bit of set collection. That's partly why you do it. Just, just a whole bunch of stuff happening. None of the decisions that fun. I played it a few times, learned the solo mode, which was the biggest like pain in the butt I've ever done trying to learn a solo mode. It was so hard to do. I finally figured it out, finally got to the flow of it. And I didn't want to go back to that. And I was like, I'll save it. Let me, let me teach it to some people. And then every single time I thought about bringing this, I was like, I'd rather be playing so many other things than go through the, 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 you know, the toughness of teaching this game. And it's so hard because it's such a beautiful game, but it's on my trade shelf. I did not think this game was worth the overhead. I don't think the decisions are interesting enough. I think the presentation's gorgeous. I don't know who this game is for. It's not for me. So Batuku is leaving my collection. I'd be interested, though, if any of you listeners have played it and really like this game and think it, I don't know, fires a different game in your collection. I'd love to hear what that is, because I think this game succeeds on its production alone, and it may be worth going, you know, going in that if you like the production, if you like the theme. But otherwise, I would probably stay away from it. Did you make it through a whole game of this, Tim? Or did you did you get like... Yeah, I played a couple of games. I played one two-handed just to learn the rules. And then I played a couple solo-only games. And um, yeah, I just couldn't bring myself to, to waste somebody else's time to teach it to them and, and try to play through it. Isn't that a rough feeling? I'm going through a couple of these right now that are on my table in... I don't know if I want to fight through them, right? It's kind of work sometimes when it doesn't quite flow and it's a grind to get through it. And you're like putting all these shits over here and this thing over here. And you're like, well, now what do I do? I have to go look at the rule book again, flip over. Where's this thing? How, how do I do this thing? And some yeah. of these games can be frustrating. John Company. Is that what you're talking about? I got both of them. I got John Company out there. And what's the other one? They Live. They Live. Okay. Yeah, both ones you've mentioned. Yeah. Basically. So both of those are yeah. out there. They're, there's a lot of stuff going on here. And 
Oof, I don't know if I'm going to make it through. I hope yeah. I do because it's supposed to be a good game. And it's just a struggle, though, sometimes. You know, limited time is a limited resource, so we'll see. It's it's hard, right? Because there can be some reward of, like, really getting into and learning these really heavy, tough games, and sometimes they pay off. But it's like, I think that's one of the things. Like, you have to make a decision, like, is it worth all of this effort? Does it pay off everything you have to go through? But Toku's not. Like, something like Gaia Project, that's fairly heavy. I think it was more, I think it's weighted heavier, but I think it was much more understandable and much more fun to play than Batoku. Um, and so I think there's a, there's like a value for the weight you're putting into it and the time you're putting into it. And that's the, that's the trade off there. And I, I don't see that coming from John company. When I looked at it, I'm surprised they live as that, that much effort, but it's probably just clunky, probably not that streamlined. There's a lot, just a lot of components yeah. all over the place. So we'll see if I can get it organized and get it going here, but yeah. hopefully it's a little more streamlined. All right, cool. So Adam, you had something else you wanted to talk about a future take tonight? Yeah, there's a game on Kickstarter right now, and it is called Frozen Frontier. That's by Cosmodrome Games and Arcane Wonders. So clicking through Kickstarter, normally I wouldn't care, but I saw that Cosmodrome Games title. I was like, hmm, what other games do I know that are made by Cosmodrome Game and Arcane Wonders? Smartphone Inc., of course, one of the best games of all time. So that got me interested. I started digging around. I looked at the designer here, Andre Kulipov. He is buddies with Ivan Lashin, a designer of Smartphone Inc. and Furnace, and also a little Smartphone Inc., the card game. I think he kind of consulted with him and has been working on this game for years. I read a little bit about the designer diaries and what he was looking to accomplish here. Anyway, theme, people squandered Earth, right? There's no way that could ever happen. But in this scenario, that's what happens. And they got to go find these wormholes. They find this other planet, inhospitable planet. That's the theme. And what you're going to do is some brass type actions. You've got hand management. Everybody has their own market board, similar to brass, except as you're pulling cubes off, that kind of unlocks stuff. That's your income when it gets to the end of the round, I believe. So you're pulling cubes off, you're putting them out there in these different areas in this inhospitable planet. You go to the income phase, some of these cubes go back and they trade hands. There's a little bit of positive interaction. So you have to work together in some regards to for everybody to stay alive, but it's still competitive. A little bit of area control, area majority. The cards here, as I understand it, are a little less restrictive. It looks like a light rules overhead with a lot going on, highly economic game that seems right up my alley. So I'm looking forward to this one. There's about six days left on Kickstarter. So maybe the Kickstarter will just be ending when this episode releases. I'm sure there'll be a late pledge. If you're interested, take a look. Right now, this is a weight at 3.67, so not too heavy. And like I said, it seems like it's going to flow pretty nice. They're being honest about the playtime at 120 to 180 minutes. So I'm looking forward to this one. If that sounds cool to you, take a look and read about it. They can describe it much better than I can to you. That's Frozen Frontier, Cosmodrome Games, and Arcane Wonders on Kickstarter right now. Well, the, the worrisome part is that if it, they say 120 to 180 minutes, but it's actually like an hour or more, you know, right. What if they're being dishonest about it? Then we're hosed. <laughs> no, I, when you mentioned this, you, you, you texted me about this game and this is by Cosmodrone, which has made, you mentioned uh, smartphone ink, which we love aquatica, which aquatica. is just a really cool production and game furnace is really interesting. So unique mechanisms, cool productions they make here. So I, I checked it out and I, I got to tell you that the board, the table presence of this game could be, could not be less interesting to me. Now, I know this could be a prototype version, but there's nothing at all that, that gets me excited here. So for me, this was an immediate turnoff. I have no interest in looking at it further. Um, you know, I'm really interested. Like, obviously, these guys have, have produced some really cool games. So I'll be interested to, uh, I'm sure you're going to back it, Adam. I'm sure you, you probably get your finger on the pledge button and uh, maybe you'll back out last minute. We'll see. But um, if you do back it and we play it at some point, maybe I'll be surprised by it. But I, I don't see anything here that really gets me excited other than the the develop, the, you know, the publisher who uh, has done some pretty cool stuff. Well, I'm excited to prove you wrong about this one, too. All right. Sounds good. All right, cool. Well, I think that will wrap up our episode of Board Game Hot Takes, although I do have one final note tonight, and that is that we got a really nice review on Apple Podcasts, and this was Apple Podcasts in Sweden. I think this is the first Apple Podcasts 
Swedish review that we've received. As far as I know, I can't really see Swedish reviews on Apple Podcasts, but I got a notification about this one. So I'm going to read it. And this one starts out great. Five-star review. And here's the title. Despite everything, it's great. That really (laughs) sets us up for some success. But let me read it here. So what they said was, why despite everything? Well, they're basically the polar opposite of me. They hate Marvel United, a top three game for me with 100 plus plays. They love Terraforming Mars, a bottom three game for me that I dread playing every time. At least one guy hates co-ops. Co-ops make up 80% of my collection or my favorite type of game. They love Euro multiplayer solitaire games. I want as much conflict as possible games and I'm quickly bored by MPS. And Dislike Rising Sun, a game that blew me away because of the incredible negotiation and bluffing aspect and is my favorite conflict game. Despite all this, I still listen to this podcast. Why? The hosts are interesting and their banter is fun. They have reasonable, non-hyperbolic discussions about stuff they like and dislike. And basically, the podcast is just fun to listen to. So despite everything, it's great. This is by Nevermore, again, in Sweden. Yeah, you kind of nailed us, except I just want to point out that we all hate co-ops. Only one of us likes Euro multiplayer solitaire games. So you're maybe halfway there. And only one of us really didn't like Rising Sun. So... You know, there's some there's some shared interest here, even if it doesn't. He nailed the Marvel United thing. <laughs> Thank you so much for this review. This is really nice to hear. Love to see these great reviews all over the world, no matter where they're coming from. So glad you stuck with us, even if making me mad sometimes. All right. Well, thank you, everybody. If you would like to follow us on uh, Twitter, you can find us at BG underscore hot takes. Until next week. Take care, everybody. Bye bye. Thanks for listening.